0: Father, I pray that as we come before your word today, Lord, that you would bless us all richly, Lord. Guide us uh, as, we, as we come to your word. Guide us as we, as we seek to hear from you. Lord, we thank you that your word is so deep and so rich. And I pray that you would speak through me today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and I pray that as we grow in our understanding of your word, we might grow in the living of your word as well. Amen. Okay. So Ephesians 1. We last week had a look at this, uh, this second sentence which finishes off the chapter from verse 15 and on. And... Uh, Let's just, let's just look at it as we start again. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remember, you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, or glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that, which he has called you to. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. So up to that point, this is the main gist of the passage. That now that these believers that he's writing to have had their eyes of their hearts enlightened, now that they're saved, now that the Spirit of God has sealed them, now that they have been redeemed, that that's not the end of it. But rather, there is this prayer he's praying that they might grow in wisdom and revelation so that they would truly know and understand the hope to which they've been called. So, in other words, they've got this hope in the future. There's this. There's this. Their focus is not on the here and now, but on where God is taking us to ultimately, and also that they would know. Um, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So as far as the now goes, knowing who we are in Christ, knowing what he's done for us, what he's given to us, what he's accomplished for us, understanding who we are through God's eyes. And thirdly, that we would know what... uh, is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And so as well as seeing the hope in the future and the blessings we have now, also now we need to recognize that the having the spirit of God means we have this power that is absolutely immeasurable, cannot be quantified. And as the as the chapter finishes off, Paul talks about this power that we have through the Holy Spirit And it says in verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is the power that took Jesus Christ, raised him from the dead and exalted him in the heavenly places. That power is within us. Now, then Paul finishes off the chapter talking about this exaltation of Christ. When he says he's been seated at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we saw there at the end that this exalted Christ, through the Holy Spirit, indwells each one of us. And we come together as a church. And so the church local and the church universal, in the sense of all Christians, we are an immeasurable force. Because Christ dwells in each one of us. Now, today I want to have a little bit more of a look at this exaltation of Christ. Because sometimes I think we come under a misunderstanding. Sometimes there's this misunderstanding that um, the Apostle Paul... Because he was an apostle, because he was a prophet and because God spoke to him that, you know God would say, hey Paul, I'm going to I've exalted Christ. Oh brilliant, let me just write that down quickly and the idea is, I think in some of our heads, I'm going to sneeze in a minute hold it back, hold it back Um, the idea in some of our heads is that Paul um, and other prophets just got information from God and bypassed everything else Now, I don't believe that's the case. The Apostle Paul certainly did receive revelation from God. But we also know that God chose Paul and Paul was perhaps in his day one of the greatest scholars of the Old Testament. And when God chose an Apostle, he chose Paul above everybody else and Paul knowing the Scriptures so well. And the irony was that Paul knew the Old Testament. I mean, he probably had the whole thing memorized. That's how well they knew it. And that's a lot of stuff to memorize. And yet, the conclusion he came to was that God wanted him to kill Christians. Now, that's getting it wrong big time. So then what happens is that the Jesus, as we know, stops him on the road to Damascus, and Paul has this conversion experience. And Paul re- realizes how wrong he is. But before he starts his missionary journeys, it's a period of about three years, and for the bulk of that, that time, we think he may have been in Arabia, where he was studying. It is almost as if a mathematician has come has solved this great equation writes the answer down and realizes it's wrong is given the right answer and now he has to go back through all of his workings and see how he got it wrong and paul for a period of probably years was going away and trying to see how did i get it that wrong now From our perspective here in Ephesians 1, what I want us to see is that what Paul is telling us about what Christ has accomplished, what Christ is going to do, where Christ is now, where we stand, he's not just plucking this stuff out from thin air. He's not just getting stuff directly revealed to him from God. He's in fact, he's teaching stuff that was always there in the Old Testament. It was always there. The idea that a Messiah would come and that he would be exalted in the, to the right hand of God in heavenly places above every rule, every power, every dominion, that was always taught. Let's have a look at a few passages. First of all, before we go to the Old Testament, let's go to Matthew 22. Because I want to show you Jesus quoting the passage that we're going to turn to next and I want you to see just how how he does this by the way the most quoted portion of the Old Testament in the New Testament is Psalm 110 Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament Part of the Old Testament in, by the New Testament, and here's a good example of it. In Matthew 22, looking at verse 41, this could be called "How to Shut Up Pharisees." Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question: "What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he?" Now, this is this is a fascinating question, okay? Because firstly we think of Christ being Jesus Christ, right? I mean, some people think that Christ was his surname or something, you know? Which Jesus? Jesus Christ, you know? But Christ is just the Greek word for the, old, the Hebrew word Messiah. It just means the Messiah. So he's asking the Pharisees, what do you know about the Messiah? Who? Wh- wh- what do you know about him? Whose son is he? Now this is interesting because son, meaning a descendant through, this is a phrase where Jesus would call himself Son of Man, and others would use other terms. And the Pharisees are being asked what they think of the Messiah. And when they say, who's, when they're asked whose son is he, they said he is the son of David, because there is much revelation in the Old Testament. We'll look at some of it in a minute. But there's much revelation in the Old Testament which talks about the Messiah being from the line of David. And there is a Davidic throne. David as king, that line will continue forever. Because one of David's descendants will rule forever. And that's the Messiah. So to say that he is the son of David is correct. In a nice little twist in the passage though. The son of David tends to refer to the kingship and the ruling and the reigning of Messiah. Which is what they were looking for. Which is why they missed who Jesus was. And it's why Jesus so often referred to himself as Son of Man. Because he was coming in the first coming in a very different way than he will come in the second coming. So they are looking at the Messiah as one who will bring judgment. They said to him, "A Son of David, he said to them, how is it then that David is? In the spirit, in other words, David here is speaking in scripture and is spirit inspired. This is, this is without error. How is it that David calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, so God the Father David is saying this, this is David writing, God the Father is saying, um, sorry, God the Father speaks to another person who David says is my Lord. Now the two words Lord here are different. The first Lord is the name of God, Yahweh. The second Lord is Adonai, which just means Lord, means Master. So David is calling someone his Lord. So Yahweh is speaking to David's Lord and Yahweh, God, says, sit at my right hand until I put the enemies under your feet. And Jesus is saying to them, how is it then that if the Messiah is the son of David, descended from David, they think of David as being great, how come David has to refer to him as Lord? This descendant of David is greater than David. And they didn't know how to answer. And Jesus is simply showing them, I think as much as anything else, how little of the Old Testament. They might have memorized it, but they didn't understand it. So let's go and have a look at it. Psalm 110. This is a very, very important foundational passage. And I want us to make sure that we understand it. Psalm 110. Pretty much in the middle of your Bible. Now, in these first three verses, we see the kingship, the kingship of the Messiah, the Lord. Now, you can see here now, hopefully, in your Bibles, where it's now direct Old Testament, the Lord is in capitals, L-O-R-D, all capitals, because it is the name of God, Yahweh. The Lord says to my Lord, not capitals, different word, as I said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And guys, that's pretty much where we are today. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and eventually all of his enemies will be footstools for him. Now the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And so these first verses just speak of the ruling kingship of the Messiah. Verse 4 is interesting. The Lord has sworn, that's an oath, as I understand it, God's only twice made an oath to man. Once to Abraham and once to David, that's how the term is used. And so this refers to the oath to David. The Lord has sworn he won't change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now he's a funny chap. I could get distracted here and I'm going to be very good and try not to. But simply to say this. Melchizedek was a priest that was referred to at the time of Abraham. And what made Melchizedek unique and special from the other priests in the Bible is that Melchizedek was a priest, but he was also the king of Jerusalem. So he was both priest and king. Under the Aaronic priesthood, that's the priesthood of Aaron and the descendants of Aaron who were priests throughout the Old Testament, you weren't allowed to be king and priest. You could only be a priest and you couldn't be king as well. There's an incident where somebody tried to break that rule. But we'll leave that for today. But that's how the rule was. And so Melchizedek is different. Now Jesus is going to be the priest. The Messiah is going to be a priest. But as we see in the first three verses. He's also going to rule. So he's going to be a king and a priest. Therefore he can't be a priest like Aaron. He is a priest like Melchizedek. And eventually... We will study through the book of Hebrews and look at that in far, far more detail. But I want you to see two things in this verse. Firstly, the oath here, he's sworn. That oath links us to David and the the, the covenant with David. And this descendant of David, this son of David, is going to be greater than David. He'll be Lord. And he will not only be king, he will be a priest. And notice, he'll be a priest forever. Aaron's not a priest anymore. Aaron's descendants aren't priests anymore. Heck, there's no temple for them to be priests in anymore. But this priest will be priests forever. And then it says in verse 5, and I think as we come to verse 5, we see in the first three verses, we see the kingship of the Messiah. In verse 4, we see the priesthood of the Messiah. If anything, in these last few verses, we see the Messiah as a warrior. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nation, nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. And there, that's a complicated last verse, but certainly there's a sense of lifting up the head is being restored, being renewed. And he will come, he will come into battle and he will do much killing. Guys. We are in an era where Christians will often bend over backwards to make sure we don't offend people. Because we're these nasty bigoted people. And we are, we are very careful so often not to offend and not to come across as anything other than very gentle and loving. And I get that and to a degree I agree with that. I'm simply saying when Christ returns... He will not be making disciples, he will be making corpses. Whether somebody follows Christ or not is the most serious of matters. It trumps everything else. It is so important that we understand... When we see the first coming of Christ, we see God wooing people, calling people, saying, come, follow me. And that is the heart of God. But when we see the second coming of Christ, we see him exercising judgment on those who have made their decisions when the time is up. And that is the heart of God, too. We need to understand, you know, I I get that there are times where we say, well, you see it this way and we see it this way and we'll just have to agree to differ and it's good to be polite and it's good to be courteous. I'm not saying it's not. But we need to understand that the greatest sin of all is rejection of God and rejection of his Messiah. And God will hold to account those people who've rejected him. And I think it's important for us To remember that, to have that in mind when we engage with people who try and reject Christ. And just, we need to understand that... How does God feel about us? That's, that's the bulk of Ephesians 1, right? We've been looking at how God feels about us. What he's given for us. What he's done for us. How he loves us. How he cherishes us. All of these wonderful things he's done for us. But when we come to the end of Ephesians. And we see this picture of Christ at the right hand of the Father. And his enemies a footstool. We need to understand that that's how he feels about those who reject him. Footstools corpses there will be a time of reckoning and our decision on God which ultimately will be seen in our decision regarding Jesus Christ will be the decider of our eternity and we need to see that part of God and the Pharisees surely did I think the lovely thing about the whole twist here is Jesus is asking them a question, and they're saying, Yeah, Messiah, we believe the Messiah, Son of David, power, ruling, authority, and they're the ones who are going to be crushed. That's the twist in that tale. So here in this Psalm 110, and this, as I say, is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. The most quoted Old Testament passage, in fact. Here we have this. This reference to the exaltation of Christ. And and the reason I'm taking the time to go back here is, isn't it easy in the context of Ephesians, like we did last week, to look at all the wonderful things of God has done and then say, and he has exalted him above. And we kind of like, it's just like a little wrapping up at the end, isn't it? You know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. No, no, no. This is a key Old Testament doctrine. That the Messiah would be a a a priest and a king forever. And that he would rule. And that he would rule at the right hand of Yahweh as his equal. Lord of David, the great David, his Lord. And that his enemies... Be destroyed, that there would be corpses, that there would be blood, and that he would rule and that he would reign and he would have authority and that, that he would reign forever. And that's our God, that's our Christ. And we live in this weird time where we have Christ in us. And yet the the exaltation of Christ is not yet fully complete. Now, something else that comes to this passage... And again, I I should have said this at the start, forgive me. But the reason we go back here is I think when the New Testament either quotes or references the Old Testament, there is the implication and understanding that we are looking at that entire passage. So in other words, when Paul to stay in psalm 110 but when paul in ephesians talks about how seated at the right hand above every rule authority power and dominion every name that is named then we can see this here in psalm 110 we can see that linkage there but what paul is doing is he's pointing us to the whole of psalm 110. now one of the key themes in this Ephesians 1 passage has been this concept of Christ in us. Now, this is directly linked to this concept of him being a priest, our great high priest, okay? And the priesthood of Christ is linked to him indwelling us. He is our our access to God. Remember, the priest connected God and man. It was Job who said, I believe in chapter 9 of Job, he said, he talked about, no, actually it wasn't, Different chapter. But anyway, he does say in Job, he talks about, oh God, that there would be an advocate between you and I. There is Job in all his pain and suffering, shaking his fist to God and getting nothing back but silence. And he says, if only there was some way of knowing you, God, hearing you, having a response from you, if there was somebody who would stand between us. And that's the role of the priest, and ultimately, that's the role of Messiah in his priesthood, that he is between us and God. Now, we see that in Ephesians 1 with regards to redemption. That Christ, seeing us separated from God, we'll come back to this next week, but Christ, seeing us separated from God, that he took the price for our sin. Upon himself, so that we could be reconciled to God. And then you can see how he unites God and man, and that is the role of a priest. But the priesthood of Christ is seen in all sorts of different ways. I think we should probably look at a few. Um, firstly, in 1 John. So I'll go way, way to the back of your Bibles to Revelation, and then just a tiny bit forward. John says in 1 John and chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So in other words, John is writing to prevent people from sinning. Because Christ is our Redeemer, because we've been redeemed from the, the power and the mastery of sin, we don't need to sin anymore. We have a new nature. But we do, because we have an old nature too. And so if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so there is this, not just this one-off thing, but there is this constant. If Christians ever wonder, but what happens if I die and I've just committed these sins? I mean, I die in the midst of sinning. Folks, we're all going to die in the midst of sinning. We're just not aware of the depth of our sin. (laughs) That's the reality of it. But if we do sin, there is an advocate and while we may not be living righteously, he is the righteous advocate and this is the point verse 2 he is the propitiation for our sin, not only for ours but also the sins of the whole world. In other words, Christ is the one who is the atoning sacrifice. He is the one who who the punishment is given to so that we don't have a punishment. What about that sin that we commit? Christ has paid for that sin. He's the one who has taken the punishment for that sin. And so he is our priest constantly in the sense that whenever we commit sins, that Christ is always there. He is always there atoning for our sins. He made the atonement on the cross. But when we do sin, when we continue to sin, there is that constant role of a priest in keeping us clean before God. We don't have to worry about, what if I have a bad thought and then get run over by a bus? You're okay. Because he is our advocate. But more to the point, when we do mess up, we know who to go to. When we do mess up, we come back to the Father. And do you know, I think this is one of the, the most damning lies of the enemy. That when we sin, he wants us to stay away. The one thing the enemy does not want us to do when we fall into sin is to go to God. And that's the one place we have to go. So what does he do? He tells us, oh, you know, you know you're a hypocrite praying when you're a sinner. Why read your Bible when, you, when, you, when you're so dirty and you're so rotten and you're so bad? And we allow our sin to keep us away from God. That's the enemy's plan. Because of who God is, because of what Christ has done for us, that's the first place we go when we sin. We confess our sin and he forgives us our sin. And we have this connection with him because he is constantly our eternal priest. The advocate for us before God the Father on the issue of our sin. So when we mess up folks, let's just get back on our knees. Doesn't matter how bad, doesn't matter how long it's been, just get back to God. That's the only solution. Now, as well as being our advocate, if you turn to the book of Hebrews. Just a little bit further back. Verse 23 of Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It's kind of like an obvious statement, isn't it? You had to have a lot of priests because they kept dying. (laughs) You know, it's like when someone's dead, that kind of prevents them from being a priest. So you have another one and then he dies. And when you have another one, then he dies and you have another one. So you've got lots of priests, right? But he, this is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently Because he continues forever. Isn't that great? You see, the Jews had a priest that was the connection between them and God. But because Christ rose from the dead, that's that power in Ephesians 1. This is all part of the context. Because Christ rose from the dead, he is constantly our priest because he will never die and he will live forever And therefore, his role as a priest will never come to an end. And so, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, since those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to to make intercession for them. So he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Who's them? The them are those who who draw near to God through him. I think sometimes, because we use the word intercession to mean praying for someone, that when we talk about Christ being our intercessor, we have a picture of Jesus praying. Saying, Father, please do this, Father. And And I think that's slightly off. In that, when we intercede, when we pray, what we're doing is we're going before God on behalf of someone else. We're essentially acting like a priest. Funnily enough, just yesterday, um, I had a a Facebook memory thing that came up where somebody years ago messaged me or put a post... uh, to me on Facebook and said hey I know you're a Christian my sister's terribly sick and she's you know a mother and she's a wife and she's really struggling would you pray for her and the idea this person had is well I'm not really a believer I'm not really a Christian but I believe in God enough that I want someone to cry out to God but he wouldn't listen to me so would you do it for me So I was essentially being asked to be a priest. And that's really what we mean by intercession. Is is reaching out to God on behalf of someone else. Being in the gap between the two. So when Christ intercedes for us, what it means in this context is, when somebody wants to get near to Yahweh, there's only one way you can get to God now. And that's through Christ. And when you go to Christ, Christ says, Father, I've got this one. My blood has covered their sins. And that's how he intercedes. That's how he comes to the Father and says, this one's okay. My, this one has, has come to me and my blood has covered their sins. There's no wrath for this one. That's the intercession of Christ. And so he is our priest, he's our advocate, he's our intercessor. And there's another lovely one as well. Let's go back a little bit more in Hebrews to chapter 4. Man, we really need to do Hebrews sometime. Verse 14 of Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You see, when we have Christ as our high priest, this is a He's a great high priest. He's the best high priest. Because he is not someone who's unable to sympathize. Sometimes we think of um, You know, those, you know, the the priests were kind of above the people we're seeing in our evening series, how we're going to see particularly tonight, actually, how different the role of the leaders was, the priests, the kings, the prophets, how different that was from everybody else. And they were kind of in a very different league. That's not true anymore. Thank goodness. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing special in that I simply have the same spirit that you have. I'm not in a different league to you at all. I just happen to be given a different type of gifting. That's all. And so there was this kind of distinction and division. And the great thing about Christ as our high priest is he is someone who understands. Because this separation has been dealt with. He can see us. He can understand us. He came as a man and again this incarnation thing just blows my mind but he who created the entire universe he who created time came to be a fetus with a barely functioning brain he who knew everything had to learn everything from scratch Just the most astonishing sacrifice. But by doing that, he understands the frailties of humankind. And again, another lie of the enemy is this concept that when we've done wrong, that God is there hoping that we'll show up just so he can slog us one around the head and tell us how bad we've been. But that's not what it's saying here. It's saying he is is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. He can sympathize with our weakness. He understands our weakness. He understands just how, how difficult it is to be a human. And he has, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. Now, I don't believe that Christ was able to sin because he did not have a sin nature. But he could see, as a man, the temptations that would come. And he, in his wisdom and in his knowledge, would know that for us, these temptations aren't just things that would would bounce off, in a sense. But they're things that would appeal to the very sinful core of us. That they're things that would, would draw us and attract us. And that every temptation would be an opportunity to fall and to fail. Now, he has done it without sin. And I think that this whole concept that we're talking about here is what links us together in verse 16. Where we draw com- we, with confidence, we draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace for help in a time of need. The time of need is the time of temptation in context, right? So the time of need is when we're about to fail or when we have failed and we're about to fail again or keep failing. And we go to God for help at that time. Because he understands. And how did he resist temptation? He didn't have a sin nature. What he had was a new, the new nature, the Holy Spirit. And what do we have now? The new nature, the Holy Spirit. And so we come to him and say, Lord... Help me here now. Help me respond in my new nature and not in my old nature. Help me use this, what did Paul call it in Ephesians 1 again, that immeasurable power. See, now we're getting to the grips with it, aren't we? that there is this high priest there's your link with the exaltation of Christ he's exalted, he's king he's priest as well as being king and he through the spirit indwells us and he is our source of immeasurable power so that when we are about to mess up or when we have messed up we go to him because there is the power that we have within us we're not going for power We're going for him to help us by grace use that power to say no to sin and to live right. The work's already been done. What we need to not sin we have. And so we go before him and say, Lord, you didn't mess up. Help me not to mess up. Help me to use this new nature. Give me grace and give me strength to live as I should, which I now can do in Christ because of his power in me. And this is why Paul in Ephesians 1 is saying you need to know the hope of your calling. You need to know the riches that you've got. You need to know the power that's within you. Why? So that you can have a party and celebrate it. No, so that you won't sin. We need to understand these things because when we know where we're going to be with him forever, then being rejected by man doesn't seem like such a bad deal. And the temptations that come with that not such a problem. When we feel like we're losing out on everything in this life and we focus on the riches that he's given to us, that he's poured out to us, then that doesn't seem like such a problem. And when we look at the power within us, we understand that if that power can raise Christ from the dead and put him above every power, every authority, and can give him the power to conquer all his enemies, then that high priest is going to enable us to do what's right. You know, there are too many churches today that talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. And they talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, and what they mean is fireworks and whistles and, and light shows and, you know, woo, kind of exciting stuff. And you know what? I've noticed over the years a correlation. That the churches who talk most about the power of the Holy Spirit are typically the churches where people live in the flesh the most. You want to talk about power of the Holy Spirit? The power of the Holy Spirit is what brings us to the throne of grace so that we say no to sin rather than yes. I don't care what magic tricks you can do. Don't talk to me about the Holy, power of the Holy Spirit unless you're performing that trick. Because that's the real evidence. Now, we've got time for a, another one. Let's turn now to Psalm 8. So we've seen how Psalm 110 has given us this, this previous picture. In fact, you know what? You can turn to Psalm 8 and keep there, but I think I've got time. Let's, let's also... Next, go to Daniel 7. Just as another passage that talks about this exaltation. I I just constantly want you guys to be grounded in Old Testament. I want you to know that when these things are said in the New Testament, they're not new ideas. But they are things that the Old Testament saints were faithfully looking for. That when Paul is saying that you have this great power, and, and, and the power in you is the power that raised him from the dead and has exalted him to the right hand of the Father, that has given him rule and power and authority, that this was something that for, for generation after generation they were looking forward to. Daniel 7, I saw, verse 13. I saw him at night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. It's the name that Christ, more than any other, chose to use of himself. And he came to the Ancient of Days. Do you see the parallel here with Psalm 110? Psalm 110, the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, said to my Lord, that's the Messiah, and here we have one like a son of man, the Lord with the, with the little letters, comes to the Ancient of Days. That's Yahweh, that's God with the capital letters. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peop- that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. There it is. Parallel to Psalm 110. God the Father giving the Son all authority and all power. Right, now go to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And this is a, a slightly less obvious one, but it's funnily enough, it's more directly quoted in, in Ephesians 1. And so it's referenced more commonly. I noticed in my uh, cross-reference section that you sometimes have in the Bible that it linked to Psalm 8, but not Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is actually the bigger foundation for the passage, but Psalm 8 is quoted more directly. And this is a little bit of a uh, a slightly different one. So, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You might recognize this from worship songs, by the way. (laughs) You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babies and infants. You've established your strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heaven, at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful him and the son of man that you care for him? Oh, it all links together, doesn't it? The son of man that you care for him. Now in this context, son of man just means descendant of man. So the idea here is simply this. When we look at the glory of heaven, of the heavens, the sky, the space, the stars, the moon. When we look at that and we just go, wow, God is just awesome. Why is it that a God who has made more planets than we could count. I think I'm right in saying, a scientist will probably correct me afterwards if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right in saying that if we right now started counting, that we would probably, even if we didn't sleep, be dead before we counted the number of planets in the universe. And yet, on this planet, He created us. And so the atheist says, well, there must be life on other planets because what are the odds? And the Christian goes, there are no odds. How is it that he is mindful of us? That he gave us life? That he created somewhere we could live? That he gave us a home on this planet so that we could look out to all of the other stars and go, wow. All of that... And right here, he makes us and he chooses us and he redeems us and he seals us. It's it's just astonishing. Why, Why would you create all of this just for us to see how great you are? You're mindful of man. Yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him... With glory and honor. I don't think that's yet in the sense of, but he's not that great. I think it's simply saying, it's actually a good thing. You know, here is man, there's all the stars, and you've made him a little bit below the heavenly beings. That's probably a reference to angels, but we won't get into all that today. But you've crowned him, that's us, that's man, with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. We'll come back to this in a minute, but just go with it for now. All sheep and oxen, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, this is why it's so important. When you see something quoted in the New Testament, you go look at the context. Now, in the context of Psalm 8, you've got this progressive understanding, okay? Okay. God has created the whole universe, so we go, wow, because he's given us life, and we look out at it, and it's just like, all of this for us, and then on the earth, he gives us glory and honor, he gives us authority over the things on the earth, so there's a creation above, right, and we go, wow and wow, and you've given us life here. And then there's creation below in the sense that we have authority on the earth over the animals and the beasts and the, the fish and what have you. And this is a reference to the authority that was given to Adam and then reissued to Noah, that man would have dominion over the earth. The Dominion, I, I would hasten to add, that we're not doing a very good job of right now. In this modern era of, of pollution and all sorts, you know, we, we are... You know, arguably destroying the earth, and do we have dominion? Well, yes, in a sense we have dominion, but we're doing a pretty lousy job of that dominion. Doesn't I've heard Christians use the idea of dominion over creation to mean that we can do this kind of stuff, and it's like, dude, you do not understand what we are supposed to be doing. We have responsibility for the birds of the air and the beasts. It doesn't mean that we can mistreat the planet the way we are. Anyway, I won't do that today. But simply to say this, in verse 6, in the midst of this, he says, you've given dominion over the works of your hand and you've put all things under his feet. In that context, God has put creation under the feet of man. Right? That very verse, if we flick back... That very verse is quoted in Ephesians 1 where it says in verse 22, he has put all things under his feet in the context of the church. And so in the same way that Adam was given rule over the planet, Christ is given rule over the church and over the heavens and over the earth. And it's an interesting use of phrase. that The phrase that is used to speak of man's dominion is now being used to speak of Christ's dominion. And why is that significant and important? Because it takes us back to the original creation with Adam and Eve and all the planet and the dominion and how it was supposed to be. And what Paul is talking about in what Christ does in us is bringing us ultimately to the presence of God to see Him face to face to have that relationship that Adam had in the beginning restored with us through Christ. and so, And so the man had dominion over the planet. And when God, when Christ comes back, we will have dominion again. We will again have rule over the planet. But there will be one who rules above us, who rules over everything. Now, just to wrap all of this up, we come now to the end of the section. And by the way, some of the stuff we did today is going to be relevant contextually for kicking off next week as well, into chapter 2. But what I want us to understand is this. I hope this morning I have given you a fuller picture of the concept of the exaltation of the Messiah. That it is something that was always there in the Old Testament, that was always going to happen, that was looked forward to. It is not just that, oh, Jesus is in the heavens and he's really powerful kind of stuff. We're talking corpses. We're talking blood. We're talking about the wrath of God returning. We're talking about Jesus having authority over everything. And for us now, practically, the passage is also pointing to his priesthood and how we who have his spirit have him with us constantly as our advocate, as our intercessor for our sin and as one who is sympathetic to our weaknesses and to our sorrows and one who helps us use the immeasurable power that we have Not to do fancy shows, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to not sin. That's the power that we have. He conquered sin and he conquered death. That's what we talked about in verse 7 when we talked about redemption. We had a master, sin. We were slaves to sin. But through Christ the price was paid to free us from that master and for us to have our new master, Jesus Christ. And while Christ has not yet come back, as we can tell by the lack of corpses in the street, he has been exalted. And we are waiting for the exalted king to return. And that power that gives him that authority is in us now. He doesn't need help. With the sword and the killing, he wants us to what. He chose us to be blameless in his sight. That's what the power is for. The power is for us to be more Christ-like. And so we've seen in Ephesians so far what God has done for us, what he's accomplished. We've seen now Paul's prayer that we would become aware of and be focused on these things so that this power within us, this power that's within us, would enable us to bring about God's purposes in our life. Don't you doubt what God's done for you. Don't you doubt what he can do through you. Don't listen to the enemy. Every one of us, if we are saved, if we've been redeemed, we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, empowering us. And we need to go out and live as one's empowered. Not to seek empowerment, but to trust that he's empowered us. And let him use us for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you all along from the very beginning had this plan. That not only were you going to send Christ to to become a man, to die, to redeem us. But that ultimately through that humbling and through that suffering, he would be exalted above everything. And Father, I thank you that the power of Christ indwells us. I pray that we would, we would come before your throne when, uh, when we're tempted to stumble, knowing that you have made a way for us not to. And I pray that we would know that we worship an exalted King. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.